Well, welcome back for another episode with me, PK, you know, that preacher's kid. What follows is a meandering description of the second stage of my rebellion at the intellectual level. And by intellectual, I don't mean it in a snooty way. Perhaps cognitive level would be more apt. Anyway, as I strayed from the church and what it stood for, I entered into that forbidden outer world to find my way. I began thinking for myself, questioning everything. I began to question the motives of the fundamentalist church especially. Not only in the Christian faith, but in other religions as well. I began to question the enigmas of American politics. As I grew a little older, I began questioning my questions. <laughs> Folks, my period of rebellion lasted, th has lasted throughout most of my adult life. And you know what? The rebellion phase compares to the initial stages of launching a rocket off the earth. Rebellion rocketed me into an orbit that I am comfortable in, where there is no more need to rebel. Unless I want to blast into a different orbit. <laughs> okay, for today's homily on Rebellion Unbound, let's switch to the sanctuary for a listen. Good evening. Due to some misunderstanding of statements I made in part one of Rebel Unbound, I need this part two to help clarify what's going on for you. Was I being a godly teenager when I vowed to be bad in order to become good? Nah, I don't think so. All I wanted was to become accepted for who I was, not who I was supposed to be. The rebel in me certainly hacked out a way to becoming who I was, and not who I thought I should be. Good guy, PK, gone bad, then repenting and being born again a third time and visiting churches to give a powerful testimony of my grand conversion to the faith of my fathers. I think I kept sinning, and unlike the prodigal son, I didn't return as the shining Christian with a heart-rending testimony. Like I had once dreamed of doing, where all the pretty young ladies in the congregation would flock around me after the service to express their admiration. I'd be the closest thing to Jesus in their minds, and the church elders would smile and tip their hats on the way out. I am, I remain the lost prodigal son. You may know that Hank Williams gained notoriety for the song Lost Highway, written by an itinerant named Leon Payne. And that the singer notes that others see him as another person going down the lost highway, 
And that's pretty much what I did and still do, traveling down that lost highway. It's not a bad highway to be on, necessarily. It'd be a bad highway if it was sloping steeply down a mountainside and your vehicle slides off the side on a sharp turn. In which case, you may have overdosed at the wheel or in the back seat where old Hank gave up the ghost. Addiction to harmful substance in the long run can easily lead one to a permanent dead end. I get that. But then, that's not a true lost highway. It's a dangerous, dangerous highway. Life or death highway. Pretty limited option if you ask me. For every turn is a hazardous one. Be safer to get out of the bus and walk straight to a rehab facility, folks. If that's the way one can't help but go. Now, I know this. If I was invited back to my childhood church in Lincoln, Maine, and asked to present my testimony to the old saints that congregated there, they would tear up because I didn't get born again the third and fourth time. The current pastor who would be presiding with such glowing expectations of Mr. Wolf's prodigal son's testimony would point to his watch and bring a premature end to it. For, you see, I tend to be long-winded. There's no more conversion in my life's story, folks. My poor old childhood Bible Baptist church would be appalled. There'd be nothing good they could say to me as they left. Probably the best they could say would be, I'll be praying for you. And folks, you know, if you've listened to previous episodes, that to me, that is the equivalent of saying, So sorry that you are not right. So sorry you haven't come back to the Lord. Why would they not want to invite me to their house afterwards to dinner? Yeah, can't say that I blame them. But that's okay. I know I can afford plenty of good old-fashioned diners with that. Rebellion against fundamentalist systems ignited and caught fire when I entered a small private Wesleyan college at age 18. A plethora of shining young Christians swarmed the campus there. They disgusted me. They were clean-cut and happy-looking. I made it a practice during that time and for years to follow to appear just the opposite. Unkempt. As I made friends that had values and interests similar to my own, however, I realized that some of them were clean-cut and believed in God, but in a way that didn't present a conflict within them as it did with me. They were cool. As far as I was concerned, they never tried to push anything on me or anybody. It was peers on campus who regarded me with a wary eye that annoyed me the most. During the college years, I had questions that went unanswered about the reality of God. As a rebel, I learned to challenge the established view of God whenever I could. At this point, God was a smudge in my young intellectual scheme of things. What bugged me most was the intellectualization of Christianity and its God. 
in an attempt on the part of believers to justify its authority over our lives. By intellectualizing their conservative, fundamentalist belief system, they sought to establish their brand of Christianity as a viable brand of thought that could stand on its own when pitted against the very belief systems and philosophies of the outside world. The writings of a Francis Schaeffer, who had organized a Christian community in Switzerland somewhere, were selected to be read and discussed by the whole student body for a week of colloquiums on the role of Christianity in a modern world. His work, Schaeffer's, sought to duke it out with other belief systems by touting the tenets of his faith in a highly literate approach. He had answers for the non-believers, the existentialists, agnostics, and anarchists. There were student outreach groups on campus that studied his works and visited the nearby campuses of secular colleges and universities in order to share their faith with fellow students there. Well, this reminds me of the New Testament armor of God concept from dealing with the God-forsaken outside world. The zealous student initiates went forth, armed with the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of truth, and of course, the Holy Scripture in form of the Bible, the Word of God, the infallible Word, the inerrant truth of the Word. These Christian warriors held no questions about the authority of Scripture and the ideological foundations upholding their faith in God. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I'd left my Christian armor in a smoking heap on the battlefield my senior year in high school. Just clean walked off the field. The rebel in me took me to a place from which I haven't come back. What bugged me most, as I was starting to say above, was the intellectualization of Christianity, which resulted in believers being cocksure of their belief. No questions of their faith needed asking. It's a fact that the fundamentalist Christian or a member of another such sect appeared to have all the answers. Mr. Schaefer and his books supplied the answers to challenging issues of faith. That just bugs me. Just once it'd be refreshing for a believer to say, You know, I haven't thought about that. Hmm, I don't have any answers, but I'm interested in looking into it. Hmm, I'll have to think about that. They believe that they have the inside track on everything. That they possess the truth, and the godless outsider does not. I rebelled against that mindset. The Christian faculty at my college were highly educated, of course, but they carried an intellectual smugness about them that drove me mad. Oh yes, they were conversant with and tolerant of other belief systems, all the more displaying their confidence in the Christian path they had chosen to follow. However, I'm going to give you an interesting example of what 
happen to the intellectualized, confident Christian when challenged face to face about his core beliefs. Henrik Bjelko was a guest lecturer from Denmark visiting the U.S., New York State in particular, sponsored by the Penn Writers Program. Somehow, someway, my little Christian college managed to book Henrik for two days of presentations during the summer semester. The English department profs had no idea what they were asking for in the person of Henrik. And Henrik had no idea what he was in for with the English profs, who weren't terribly interested in his approach to writing. He did not know that this college was so small and Christian. Since I worked at the campus as a janitor during summers while living at home, one of the profs gave me a call and invited me to be with them that evening to greet Henrik at the local diner for coffee. He had just arrived from the airport in Rochester, where I learned later that no one from the college and English department had shown to pick him up. Frustrated, he had called the English chairperson at home and complained about his situation. So the chair sent a maintenance person to pick Henrik up in a college vehicle. One way, the drive well over an hour. During that time, Henrik had to wait at the airport. Now, Mr. Bialka, the Danish writer, finally did show up at the diner where the chairperson and a couple profs sat drinking coffee with them. I showed up shortly after. Henrik was very curious about the college being a Christian college and Wesleyan in particular. The profs explained briefly that it was a private college that espoused the Wesleyan point of view. Puzzled even more by the novelty of this religious institution of higher learning, Henrik pressed for clarification of their Weltanschauung by questioning their views of various aspects of the Genesis account of creation. It was Mr. Bielka's view that by naming all the creatures, Adam, in effect, was extinguishing them, killing them. Henrik's English was laudable, but I thought the killing bit was merely a translation issue. That's the first I'd heard such a theory. The profs grew very uncomfortable as the discussion progressed, and Henrik asked more questions about their version of the creation myth. Profs didn't appear much interested in carrying on the dialogue. They were not interested in Henrik's thoughts, as Henrik was interested in theirs. It didn't take long for the chairperson to suggest that they all return home for the night. Discussion over. I was appointed to escort Henrik to his sleeping quarters in the new girls' dorm at the edge of campus. It was like they wanted nothing to do with it. Once situated in his room, Henrik asked if I had any hashish on me, which I had, but not on me. I had a tiny amount and was trying to make it last the summer. But this was the opportunity of a lifetime for me to meet a real writer. So I ran home for the hashish and a couple poems I had recently written per Henrik's request. We sat in his room reading to each other late into the night. I didn't have the heart to tell Henrik that no smoking, not to mention hashish, was allowed on campus and in the dorms. 
He took it for granted that it was okay. We got a knock on the door and the security person warned us about the smoke coming out of our room. Smoking and drinking were strictly forbidden on campus grounds. Evidently, he thought we were smoking cigarettes. He probably never smelled real live hash before, given that he was a law-abiding Wesleyan Christian who lived separate from the unredeemed world out there, from which Henrik arrived to spread his anti-Christian gospel. Henrik pressed upon me his view of language that night. Somehow, and it was so new I could barely grasp his meaning, somehow affixing words to an object was a way of actively subjecting it to the name If that makes sense. I think it so does. Hence, this would be what Adam was doing according to the Genesis account, naming things thereby bringing them under his subjection. Then it makes sense that Adam's son, the vegetarian Cain, killed his meat-loving brother who reportedly was most loved by God. Terrible story. Just terrible. Well, as you can guess, Cain was kicked out of the kingdom just like his parents were expelled from the Garden of Eden, heaven on earth. One's in the family. Somehow what Henrik had to say changed my view of the inerrant Word of God, commonly known as the Holy Bible. For the first time, I began to look at the symbolic content of the book, which made the Bible a little more interesting than I had previously thought. It made me think a little different about the Jonah and the whole and the whale story. It made me think a little differently about the Abraham almost killing his son as a sacrifice in obedience to God's command story. However, in this case, it turns out God was just testing poor old Abraham to see how obedient he really was. I began to see it as a terrifying tale of a father bringing his son under subjection, ruling by the sword, I guess it's called. For the aspiring Christian, the lesson to be learned by all these subjection stories is summed up pretty aptly in the third verse of the old hymn, Blessed Assurance. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior and happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Yes. I get the idea of the state of perfect submission. I think the Buddha talked about that too. Surrendering to instead of fighting against the flow of life. Just switch around midstream and go with the flow instead of against it. Much easier and more enlightening. Easier to enjoy life, easier to enjoy living, easier to learn about living and to navigate the river of one's life. It lightens one's load. Surrender to the flow, folks. Stay in the middle and do your damnedest to keep afloat. Well, there you have stage two of Rebel Unbound and my evolution as a rebel. Unbound. I never viewed the Christianity of my childhood the same after this stage. It lost its meaning. It fell by the wayside and tossed 
into the dumpster of experience. What I took with me on my journey from that time had little to do with spiritual teachings, much to do with family outings, rock collecting, music, reading, the positives. The Christianity of thought process practiced in my childhood has slipped away, and at this time I'm not about to go looking for it. It's taken a rebellious effort on my part to break with the past. Once that break is made, and there is peace of mind about it, rebellion is no longer necessary. But I didn't know that I kind of carried on with the rebellion against unexamined ways of doing things. I found this to be true once I obtained a certified teaching position in the public schools. Schools remain entrenched in the thought processes that conceived them over a hundred years ago, but that is stuff that belongs to a separate episode. Hey, until then, May we find our way. Thanks for listening.